I'd ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the fifth chapter of the New Testament book of Ephesians as we are continuing in our sermon series, a verse-by-verse look at the book of Ephesians in a sermon series simply called Text Messages. And here in this letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul is, is writing to a church that he had started many years ago, and he's he's teaching this church of the importance of of living a Christian life and comparing that to the worldly life that is going on around them in Ephesus. And, And Paul says that Christians should look and live differently. We're going to start this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm in verse number 1 this morning. And we read Paul's words. He writes this, Imitate God, therefore... And we're going to stop right there for just a quick second, okay? Whenever you see the word therefore in your Bible, I want you to think, well, what what is it therefore? The word therefore is going to refer you back to something that you previously already read. So in order to understand where he's going in chapter 5, we want to look at the end of chapter 4. I'm in Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 25 reads like this. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, so stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Don't use foul and abusive language and, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words and slander as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Now, we have a good starting point on Ephesians chapter 5. Let's start over. Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 1. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice to us, a pleasing aroma to God. For those of you joining us for the very first time, you'll see on the back of your bulletin there are some fill-in-the-blanks, and I'm going to give you those fill-ins here, and they'll be up on the screen behind me as well. Point number one on your notes this morning is this. All actions of all Christians reflect Jesus. All actions of all Christians reflect Jesus. This is one of those verses, this is one of those areas in the Bible here in the beginning of Ephesus that that our world and even some young Christians really look at and they they purposefully and willfully will leave a few of the parts of this one out. And don't let the world confuse you here because this is really important what Paul is saying. He's telling us to live a life filled with love and then he's exhorting his followers, the Christians here in Ephesus, to follow the example of Christ. Our world as well as the world that that Paul is writing to, has a very corrupt image of Christ. Then, many people would would just kind of create whatever they wanted to, to worship. And we see that today as well. When, When you create a Christ that you want him to be, instead of who he is, now you're following a man-made example, and that's not following Christ. Christ's definition is is in his word. And that's really important that we understand who he is. I don't know how many times I have have heard people say, you know, Pastor, I don't don't consider myself a Christian or I don't consider myself really religious, but the Bible says to just love people. And if I love people, love is going to take care of everything. 
Or I'll hear something like this, you know, the Bible says, well, God is love. And so if I just love people, then God is okay with me and and, and I'm fine. The problem is, is when we approve a very bad definition of who God is, then we will accept a very perverted definition of what love is. Love's not just hugs. It's not just bumper stickers. Love love isn't, isn't just... It's not just a family gathering. It's very mistaken in our culture. Here is an action of love that is rejected many times culturally. Love helps others grow. See, a lot of times we don't like to think about that. We just want to love, we just want to to, to give love, but when it comes to helping others grow, no, love helps others grow, and love also gives direction. Jesus loved, and Jesus had those hard conversations with the people who he loved, and he gave direction. In John chapter eight, Jesus is coming into the temple area and and there's scribes and Pharisees and and religious leaders and and they see him coming into the the temple area and they had just brought in, now the temple area could be used, it's it's where they would bring people almost to court as well, and they had brought in a woman who had just been caught in an adulterous relationship. And and they called out, they, they, they see Jesus here and they say, Jesus, come here, come here for a second. This gal, this lady here, we just caught her in an adulterous relationship. And we know what the law says. The law says that we should stone her to death. But we want to know what you have to say about this. So Jesus does. He, he kind of looks at him, and, and, and it's like everyone goes quiet as they're, they're listening to him to see what he's going to say. And Jesus kind of kneels down. And they start pestering him a little bit more. What is it that you have to say, Jesus? What do you have to Should we stone her? Jesus just says to them, he says, he who is without sin amongst you, let him be the one to throw the first stone. They're kind of quiet at this point. Goes back to like writing in the dirt, just kind of scribbling some things down. And everyone's quiet now, looking at him, scribbling in the dirt, and one by one, these leaders, these church leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they, start, they start leaving. Kind of makes you wonder if Jesus may have been writing down maybe their names and their sins in the dirt. They just start leaving and walking away. And I want you to see, I want you to, to, to read this conversation in John chapter 8, verse number 11. Jesus says this, as he stands up and he asks the woman, he says, where, where are those who are condemning you? Didn't nobody condemn you? This is from John chapter 8, verse 11. No, Lord, she said. And then this is so important, and I want you to hear this. This is the words of Jesus. Then he says, well, then neither do I. But go and sin no more. It's such an important part of this scripture. There's another scenario that we find in, in John chapter 5. We see this example of Jesus' love. As here in, in this first example, Jesus comes to, to spiritually help this, this woman at this time where she's being attacked. And, and, and then he, he loves and longs to bring her out of her sin for good. And in John 5... 
Jesus had just healed a blind man. And it was crowded around the temple that, that day. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they come to the blind man. They're like, who healed you? Who was it that healed you? He's like, I don't know. I don't know who healed me. A little bit later on in the day, Jesus finds this blind man. And he tells him this. I'm in John chapter 5, verse number 14. Jesus says this, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore. He heals the man. And he gives him direction to help him, not just in that moment, but for his life. This is the second point in your notes this morning. Non-believers can see a loving God when Christians distance themselves from sin. Non-believers, they can see God's love in you when you are able to pull yourself out, when you are able to, to, with his power, separate yourself from sin. Many parents will say, you know what, it is loving to discipline my children. Okay, some people, some parents don't say that. There's a, but a lot of parents would agree, yes, discipline is loving, but discipline itself is not the end of the process, right? Yes, we, we have to correct our children, but part of that is presenting them a correct path in their lives. The path that Jesus has set for, for these people who he's, we've seen in these examples and for you and I, the path is to go and sin no more. It's the path that God has given us. That is love. That's not love that just stops at one point and says, I'm not going to go any further because it's offensive. No, no. Here is, here is the path. Our scripture in Ephesians chapter five, 5 tells us to follow the example of Christ. Now Christ, Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn, but he did come and he provided us a path and a direction. Here's another remarkable illustration of living the example of Christ. One of the major holidays in this day and age was the holiday of Passover. And people would come to Jerusalem from all over the world. They would come in, and, and Passover was one of, one of three holidays that Jews were, were required as much as possible to get to Jerusalem and to celebrate this holiday. This particular Passover, Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples, and they had been here in Jerusalem before. His disciples, they loved him. They followed him. They learned from him. They looked at him as, as their Lord and Savior. They, they would do anything for Jesus. And now they are in this upper room celebrating Passover with Jesus. And before they get to, to dinner, Jesus does something that shocks his disciples. Back in those days, most people would wear sandals and they'd walk around on dirty roads. There's nobody that's wearing Jordans, you know, cruising around in some high class. No, uh-uh. But see, when you went and you would have a meal with people together, a lot of times we'll sit in a chair, we'll scoot up to the table. Back then, you would actually almost recline at the table, which means your feet were towards the table. And let's face it, dirty feet at the table, not something that we really want, right? So it would be custom to where when you would come to a meal of that kind of significance that your feet would be washed. And feet washing would almost always be done 
by a servant. Somebody in the community who was on the lowest rung of, of, of status, on the lowest rung of, you know, you might not even know this person's name. They weren't even worth knowing their name. Wouldn't even look at him like that. And this shocked the disciples when before dinner, Jesus grabs a bucket of water and he gets down on his knees and he starts washing their feet. Starts washing their feet as a slave and as a, a servant. And I want you to see what Jesus says when he finishes this. I'm in John chapter 13, I'm in verse number 12. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and then he sat down and he asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash others' feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done for you. We are seeing Christ as a servant who lowers himself in status, but somebody who is humble enough and loving enough to lead other people out of their sin. That's what Jesus is doing. That's the example. Paul continues his instructions to us, and he's talking about proper actions of Christians and improper actions of Christians. Remember, what Paul is doing right now is he is teaching his church. He is saying, these are actions of a Christian life. These are not. Let them be different. I'm in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm in verse number 3. Paul writes this, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Paul's not done being very, very specific on the issues that he wants to teach about. He needs the church in Ephesus and he needs the church in Paris, California to pay attention because these sins that he's speaking of, they create rot inside the church. Here's the thing, Paul wouldn't write about it if it wasn't important. I wanna read you this verse from the English Standard Version because there's, there's one important word that I want you to catch. This is from the ESV, Ephesians chapter five, verse number three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. It's that last word, saints. Who are the saints? Are the saints? Do you have to be a monk or a nun for a bunch of years in your life and then die and then have a, a, a worldwide council vote on you to actually become a saint, to be a saint? No, Paul is saying you are saints. God's people are saints. You here today, you are saints. According to Paul, according to the Bible, God's people are saints. I want you to look at yourself for a minute. As a saint, Paul might be looking on you and your faith a lot better than you look at yourself and your faith. Do you see how important you are as a child of God? You're a saint. You might just think of yourself as a sinner, but if you are a child of God, you're not, you are a saint. That's some responsibility, isn't it? That's a big deal. Here's the third point in your notes this morning, and this is so important. 
Christians are God's people. They are saints. There is no place for sin amongst God's saints. There's no place for it. Paul wouldn't waste this time talking about sexual immorality and greed if it wasn't important. You notice that Paul didn't write anything about jaywalking. He didn't. The church in Ephesus apparently looked both ways. Jaywalking wasn't a problem. He, he, he writes about these sins in particular and some others in this book because these are problems within the church. I wanted to find this term. We're looking at sexual immorality. This is the engagement in sexual acts outside of the sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman, the divine union of creating and fostering life. Paul brings this topic up, and Paul means something by this. The Bible is not silent on this subject. He says, God's word has no room. It does not tolerate sexual actions outside of God's rule and his law. We could spend an entire sermon series on this topic. But Paul moves on. He has something else that he really wants to talk about here. And so we're going to look and see what is it about greed that he is talking to us about. Your Bible might use the word covet or to covet. Greed is, is having an emotional attachment to something that you want but you don't have. We get greedy when we want more money. Maybe we get greedy when we, when we want a, a, a boyfriend or a certain girlfriend or, or we want, maybe it's recognition that we want or maybe it's more likes or more hearts or more clicks that we want that somebody else has and we don't. That's, that's greed that we get. Paul says this to the church in Colossae. They've got a problem with greed also. I'm in Colossians, I'm in chapter three, verse number five. Paul writes this. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Think about it. If our job is to serve others, that means outflowing, right? That's an outflowing action. Greed, though, that leads to an inflow. That means I'm bringing the attention here into, into myself. And what it is, is that whatever that item is that you so desperately want, that has now become an idol. That's what greed does. The whole idea of, of being greedy and wanting something that you don't have, it's so important that there's actually a command about this. All the way back in Exodus, in the Old Testament, I'm in Exodus chapter 20, verse number 17. We see this. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. That's being greedy. That's coveting what you don't have. And it leads to this, to, to this feeling of... of a lack of contentment. Maybe what you're coveting, maybe it is acceptance. Maybe it is power. Some in this time may covet children. Maybe there wasn't children in the home to be barren. You were looked down upon in these days. Maybe it's prestige that 
you are really looking for, you're greedy for, and, and, and you're coveting. Paul is saying that these sins have no place amongst God's people. And that's kind of deep if you think about it. These actions, he's saying, have no place in the life of God's people. And I want you to see some more actions. I want you to see what else he's saying. Follow me. I'm in Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 4. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Don't be fooled by those who try and excuse their, their sins. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Do not participate in the things these people do. It's a good warning. It's a stern warning. I don't know about your home. What did grandma do when she heard you start using some foul language? What happened back in your home? Now, my grandmother, she would break out the bar of soap. Who got the bar of soap? I see some hands. Yep, you'd have to stand there with a bar of soap in your mouth, right? My mom, my mom would use vinegar. It would be a spoonful of vinegar. And, and, and she said, if I hear something vulgar coming out of your mouth, I'm going to put something vulgar into your mouth. You remember that spoonful of vinegar. You'll watch your mouth. This is the Apostle Paul actually washing our mouth out with soap in the scriptures. That's what he's doing here. These are sins of the tongue that he's talking about. You remember as soon as you moved out of your parents' home, right? You thought, okay, I'm not here anymore. I can talk however I want. And you started using all of those words that you weren't allowed to use, right? You create your own vocabulary. Like, they are part of everything everyone hears now. There was an 11-year-old boy once who, the night before his 12th birthday, he had a special birthday request from his mom. And he said, tomorrow, when I turn 12 years old, what bad words can I start to say now? Are your words degrading others? Are your words foolish? Are, are your words talking about something that you know absolutely nothing about, but you're still just talking about it, right? It's just kind of nonsense talk. Are your words immoral? Not by the world's definition of immoral. I'm talking about God's definition of Immoral. Here's a simple way to recognize if your, if your words are immoral or, or not. Think about what it is that you're talking about. Is the action that you're talking about, is it sinful? Well, words are in that category of immoral. Sometimes we have to talk about behavior that is sinful when, when we are helping our brothers and sisters out of sin. But if all of our words are focused on, on the immoral, then our speech is tainting our witness. Does your language, does it show a godly testimony by what you say and what people hear? Think about that. When you talk, somebody hears you. It's the reason that you talk, right? Somebody is listening to you. When you come here to church, somebody sees you. 
I see you. Others here see you. Your neighbors see you. They know that this morning that, that, that you left. You leave every, every Sunday. You leave at about 930 and you're dressed up a little bit more than you are when you left on, on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And they know traditionally people are leaving dressed up this time. They got a book in their hand. Yeah, they're going to church. It's what people are, are recognizing. But I wonder, is your witness of Jesus Christ being diminished by your words and by our, our lifestyle and by our language? Are we tainting our witness? As a Christian, the words you, see, you say and the actions that you take are telling other people what it is that God tolerates. Think about that for a minute. The words that you use are telling other people what Christians talk like. They see you going to church. They know that, that your faith is part of your life. And they hear your words and say, I guess that's what Christians talk like. I guess it's okay. I guess that's what God tolerates that. I don't know if, if you've ever been to a family event where you've got a lot of families here and there is one family whose kids are just going nuts. Right? And you know who they are. I'm not going to ask you to call their name out loud, right? You know somebody. Like the kids may, may be outside playing. The kids are throwing rocks. Maybe they're pulling hair. Maybe they're drawing on the walls with crayons. Maybe they're kicking kids. Maybe they're talking during lesson. You know who they are. Do you know what the actions of your kids reflect on you? As a parent, the actions that your kids show to other people are showing other people what it is that you tolerate. That's what we show other people. Others get the idea that this is something that God tolerates. God isn't an unruly parent. No, God is a loving parent. He points us to recognize our sin, and, 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 then, and then he gives us a path to, to get out of, of our sin, and he says, go and sin no more. Paul is writing about sins that are so godless that our world should never have any reason to suspect any of these sins would be within the presence of Christians. That's what he's talking to the church in Ephesus about. That's what he's talking to us about. He says the world should never wonder if this is okay. Because godlessness has no place in the life of Christians. Come back with me to our scripture this morning. I'm in Ephesians 5, verse number 8. Paul writes this. For you were once darkness, but now you are light. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists of goodness and righteousness and truth. Paul is not saying that you are walking in the light. He's not saying that you are living next to the light. He's not saying that you are following the light. He's saying, no, you are the light of the Lord. He's saying that you are a representative. You know what light does? What light does is it, it creates. It creates fruit. And we, we see what Paul is saying. He's saying the fruit of the light is goodness and righteousness and, and truth. What John writes in 1 John, follow me, I'm in 1 John chapter 1, verse number 5. 
This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see that? If you are saved, you are a child of God and you have qualities of God. And the Bible says that you are light. One of the wonderful proofs that we have in Jesus when you come to Christ is that, is that, that proof of, of truth. We don't have to wonder. As a Christian, you don't have to wonder what truth is. It's in you. You know what truth is. You might, and we might excuse our, our sin, but we know what the real truth is. Jesus says this in John 8. John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you are a Christian, you are light. You are a witness to others. You have been exposed to absolute truth. That is in you. You are a representative of absolute truth. Every kid who has ever gone camping, maybe you went camping with mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or Uncle Ned, or maybe it was a church group or maybe it was a sports camp. And the kids who are lucky, they get one of those counselors that knows how to do these cool um, these, these, these really cool shadow puppets. You know what I'm talking about, right? So, it's dark outside, and before you go to bed, someone turns on a flashlight and you make like a rabbit or like a wolf, right? Something like this. I have no clue how to do shadow puppets. But the kids go, oh, wow, look at that. And you see, in reality, what a shadow puppet does is it blocks light so that it could portray itself on the wall. I wonder if in any of our lives we've become shadow puppets. I wonder if Christ is shining through us, but because of our personalities and our own definition of maybe who we are, or maybe our own self, we get in front of the light, so when people see us, they actually see us. And, and, and then there's some Jesus that's coming through on, on the edges, making a glow in the shape of us. Aren't we supposed to glow in the shape of Christ? This is the fourth and final point in your notes this morning. A Christian life should never eclipse God's light. A Christian life should never eclipse God's light. We're talking about diminishing your witness. When Paul says that you are a light, he's not telling you to go and shine yourself on other people. He's telling you, you have the light of Christ in you. That's what is supposed to shine on other people. And I want you to hear these instructions that Paul rounds out our scripture with. This morning, I'm in Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 10. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. 
Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful to even talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret, but their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but live like those who are wise. I know by today's standards, that sounds very, very harsh. People are going to tell you, who are you to call me out for my sin? You know who you are. You're a representative of the light. That's who you are. You're not God, but you represent God. The question is, how are we representing God? Paul's instructions are very plain and they're very direct. And he's saying Christians are to faithfully live righteous and have nothing to do with the evil ways of our world. If an action in God's eyes is evil, Paul says Christians should have nothing to do with it. Because sin is is evil. And I know you're asking yourself, you're saying, well, pastor, aren't we we supposed to to, to just love everybody? Isn't that our our job? And if I spend my time, pastor, in a sinful environment, and maybe, maybe I can bring sinners to Jesus, maybe I can. I would rather that you don't on your own. Because let me tell you what's going to happen more often than not is you're gonna put yourself in a position in a sinful world by yourself and there's a better chance that you're going to get pulled down than you're going to pull others up. If you're there by yourself. See, that's what our church is for. That's what your family of brothers and sisters is for. You are a light. You're a light of God. God is the light, and he is shining through you. Do others see the God of the Bible in you when they see you, or do they see a lowercase g God that is simply shining around your edges when they see you? Do they see you shining brighter than God is? and might be tainting our testimony. I'm thankful that God cares about the details of our Christian walk. He cares about what we say. He cares about where we go. He cares about who is in our circle. He cares about His light shining through us. You know what he wants others to see? He wants others to see him in us. We're the conduit. But it's not us that he wants to steal the show, to take the glory, to be the light. God's trying to illuminate you but not so others see you, so that others see him through you. 
Will you pray with me this morning?